We're in our fourth week of a vision series, a vision and mission series about who we are striving to be as a church. And just uh, the reason that we're doing this is ultimately, it's my desire, it's, it's, my, it's my conviction, I guess, it's more than just my desire, it's my conviction that we be built on a foundation of Scripture completely, thoroughly, from the very bottom of who we are to all that we do. And as we gather as a church... It's my desire that everybody that calls this home has this vision and has this mission so thoroughly wrapped up in who they are that it affects all of their life. And so for the last four weeks, we've really begun establishing what that is built on. And we start with because of the gospel and we talk about worship. And and just let me answer this question. It's a question that's been posed to me more than one time. And I want to make sure that it gets stated so that you all hear it and you have an understanding of it. Why do we focus so much on worship? Why do we care so much or why do we talk so much about worship? And the reason for that is, is if we don't focus on it or we don't make it a priority now in the way that we think and in the way that we formulate our views of the world and the way that we formulate the things that we do, we won't make it a priority later. Here's the deal is that, and John Calvin said this, this is not my my statement, it, you know, I, I guess I could say it was, and it would make me sound really smart, and, 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 and I would be really deep and theological. But, you know, John Calvin says our hearts are idol factories. Everything around us, we typically turn into some idol, or we have temptation to turn into some idol that we, that we worship. And so even the good things, even the honorable things like discipleship and community and, and, and the mission that we do, we have a tendency to build into to the priority, for example, I just I, I met with a guy recently, and he told me that he felt like mission was the greatest purpose of the church. The reason we exist today in the world is for mission. That we that's the greatest purpose, and that's great. I love the idea that a person cares so much about mission, but mission isn't the greatest purpose of the church. Mission exists because we love and, and worship our God. We, we, we want others to love and worship God with us. And so it, mission exists for the glory of God, right? And so you can't replace mission or, or you can't replace worship with mission. And so we have to focus on that. It has to be the very place that we start. And so for two weeks, last, last couple of weeks, that's what we focused on. We're going to build out of that this week. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to First Peter chapter 1. That's where we're going to be at. Um, and I say the last couple of weeks, it's actually two weeks ago, Matt, Matt preached from first Peter last week. Um, but it wasn't necessarily a part of the series, <clears throat> but we are going to kind of pick up where he left off last week. First Peter one. And before we jump in, let me just, let me just help build some context and some perspective for you. There's a certain amount of anticipation or excitement that goes with starting something new or building something new. Uh, and, and doing things that, you know, preparing for some new thing. I, when I was in the military, we saw this quite a bit. We, uh, we would prepare for mission, and, and there was a certain level of excitement about uh, for being at the mission briefings and preparing and looking at the sand tables, and they're moving these little toy, toy soldiers and, and toy uh, tanks and all this stuff around on the table, you know, and it makes you feel like you're really important. You belong to something really big, and you're going to do something that's just super awesome, and you're getting all pumped up about going and doing this job, even though it might involve hurting someone. You still get pumped up, but it's just reality. I, I think they do that on purpose. Oh, man, we're going to war. Yeah, let's do it. 
And so there's this excitement for it. And this is comparable to uh, Christian life in that when we come to, pl- to come to a time where we focus on mission and we talk about doing mission, we get excited for those times that we're going to go on mission. You see it all the time. Every trip I've ever been on, every, every short-term mission trip, every team I've been a part of has always gotten really excited as they prepared to go on mission. And they would, I mean, they would really ramp themselves up. They would get extra biblical, you know. They would get extra holy, and they would do cool things like read their Bible more, pray more, spend time in community more, and and seek God's guidance more, as if going on that mission was more important than the rest of their life. You see, the... The idea that these emotions and this and this momentum that builds for starting something new, it's, it's not a terrible thing. It's not a bad thing. I think it's completely natural. I think it's good. We need it. We need those things to kind of motivate us to start into something new. If we didn't have those motivations, we'd probably just sit back and just always do what we do. You know, we wouldn't have that, that movement or the desire to start something new. But if that's all we exist on or all we live for, then there's some inherent problems that come with it too. For example, if all we live for and all we desire or think about is that motivation and excitement that comes with starting some new project or going on some new mission, then what happens when that excitement and newness wears off, when the mission lasts longer than the excitement for the new project does? There's got to be something behind that, right? There's got to be more to it. I mean, what happens when... We're a very, a very uh, segmented people. We compartmentalize our lives all over the place. And you see this, especially in the Christian world. I mean, we do this quite a bit. Sunday, you know, that's really, that's God's day. You know, we, 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 we recognize we got to be at church that day. Well, except during the summer when we got vacations to go on and things like that. And that's why attendance is up and down. Because really, you know, Sunday during the school year, those are holy days. We'll be at church every Sunday for that because those are holy days. Oh, well, you know, the, the other days that are holy is when we set aside some project to do, like we come to the school and we move stuff around and we help them. That's, that's a good holy thing to do. So we, we've got we've to make sure that we're intentional about that. But what happens when you plant a church and, and, it, and, and, you know, all of a sudden it's not just about a Sunday or a project you do. This requires all of us all of us and all of us. And some projects are so big, you can't compartmentalize them away. And what I hope and what we've really been building towards over these last three weeks is, is this understanding that we have got to develop a view of mission that goes beyond us establishing some view that, that we can go on mission and then come and live our lives that we can have a life that Sunday, or, or I'm sorry, Monday through Saturday belongs to us and we'll set aside Sunday for God. We've got to have a view of mission that it goes beyond just one week or ten days out of a summer when we get up and we go to Africa. We've got to develop a view of mission that goes much further than the compartments that we try to fit it in so that we can still do all the things that we enjoy. You see, I think what we've, what we've really been building towards and what I want us to develop a view of in our church is that because of the gospel, in light of the gospel, as a result of the gospel, in response to the gospel, 
that all of life is the mission. Not just the moment that you get up and go overseas, not just the moment that you step into the school and begin to do some some social justice or mercy ministry to, to demonstrate the grace of God, not just the moment that you get up on Sunday morning to go to church. It's, it's, it's more than that. I don't think God saved us for just a portion of our lives. God saved us for everything. He wants all of us. I don't know what you're doing to me. But I'll keep going. But we need to develop this view of mission that goes further. And to do that, we have to begin to understand what is God's mission? What is God doing in the world? We spent the first three weeks really establishing this. And and so I, I hope that if you've not heard the series, you're welcome to go back and listen online. They are recorded. They are online. You can hear them there. We exist as a church because of the gospel. Everything we are as individuals and corporately as a church is a result of the gospel. It's in light of the gospel. It's in response to the gospel. So we gather because of the gospel. We are Christians because of the gospel. It's God's work through Jesus Christ that makes this possible. Through the gospel, God is reestablishing a right priority in worship. God is doing this. He is His work in the world is about reestablishing a God-centered worship. Because of the gospel, we are now able to worship in spirit and in truth. And that's really a summary of what we've gone over the first three weeks of this series. God is redeeming and restoring a people to Himself. He's doing this work. A people whose desires will ultimately only be fulfilled as they find Him at the center of all of their desire. His work through the gospel is for His glory and our joy. Don't think, don't, don't hear me saying that this is a one-way street, that we worship and we're just these, these um, slugs that just show up and worship and give everything we have to this, to this God that's distant and doesn't care. This is God's desire for us because it's His design for us. It's the way He created us. And so we will find our greatest joy as we find our worship and our desires fulfilled by Him. Here, let me just say it as concisely as possible. God's mission is to establish God-centered worship for those that He has redeemed already and those that He will yet redeem. This is what He wants for His people. If you've ever wondered what God's will for your life is, have you ever asked the question, I wonder what God's will for me is? Have you ever wondered, I wonder what God wants for me? This is what God wants for you. He wants you to be worshipful. He wants to be the center of your worship. He wants to be the center of your life because he he knows it's the best thing for you. This is his mission in the world. We've seen it over and over and over through Scripture. We'll continue to see it over and over and over through Scripture. Even as we go through today, I think you'll recognize that God's intention for us is to live this life with, with a view of mission and a view of worship that go hand in hand, that's not segregated to certain compartments of our life or certain times or days, but it's 24-7, 365. Every moment of every day is to be a day and, and a moment of worship, a day and moment of mission. So as I said, we're going to read from First Peter. If you've got your Bible, we're going to pick it up and we'll just... <clears throat> Would it be better if I just turn this off? Oh, was it? 
Okay. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And before we get into it, I just I just want to I want to say this. I want to get it out in the open. I don't want you feeling like I'm trying to manipulate you or, or or anything like that. It may feel like I'm telling you what to do today. It may feel like I'm giving you commands, and it's not necessarily my intention to do that. Partly, not totally, but the idea is what, what I want you to be able to do is is as you develop this view of mission, I want to to give you principles that will help you develop this view in you. Not not just because you belong to this church, because there's several visitors here today, but for every believer that sits in the room, this book, this letter that Peter wrote was written to the church. He wrote to people in light of the gospel. In fact, if you were here last week and you heard Matt preach, you heard him preach from 1 Peter chapter 1, and he lays out in the very beginning of his letter the beauty of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, the inheritance that we have waiting for us because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, the salvation that is ours, the joy that it reveals in us, the, the joy that it that not just reveals but results in us because of the gospel. And all of this, all, all of Peter's commands here, all of the things I'll talk to you about today, they're not meant to, to, to tell you to measure up in some way or be holy because you can do that on your own. See, because you can't. We can only be holy because of the gospel. Peter can only make these statements and call us to this because Jesus Christ has already saved us. You see, the difference is there, there's a perspective. Let me, let me just put it in this, in this perspective. People that, people that look at this as a, as a perspective of I can measure up, I can, I can make myself worthy of God, I can make myself worthy of salvation, they don't, they, they don't recognize the worth or, the, or, or, or how they've been redeemed. They don't recognize what God has done to save them. You see, Peter tells us in light of the gospel, this is what you're supposed to do, but do it for this reason. We're not going to read this verse, but if you can look at it in your Bible, it's verse 17. You are ransomed. You are bought. You have been brought out of slavery. You have been ransomed out of being kidnapped or, or taken. You've been ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so this idea, this, this perspective that, that we can do these things and make ourselves worthy to God is just not recognizing our value is caught up in who God is and what He's done for us. And so we have to begin with this perspective. And so really... The things that I'm saying to you today are, are for believers. If you're sitting in the room today and you're not a believer, it's not that there's not something here for you. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, there's plenty here for you. But we can't take this as a church and take it into the world and say, hey, world, you have to live like this. You have to measure up to this. You have to do these things. Peter wrote these things to the church because they're all done in response or because of the gospel. If you're sitting here today and you're not a believer, it's not that, it's not that you shouldn't hear something today. I, I want you to hear something today. Jesus Christ came and He died a sacrificial death in your place for your sins so that this can mean something to us. But apart from Him, it's nothing. 
So listen, and, and if you're not believing today, then, then listen for the beauty of the gospel. But if you're believing today, hear the scripture and bring your life in line with it. And see, see, these aren't my commands. The principles that I'm going to talk about today are not mine. They're God's. So I, I just want that set up front. I want you to hear it up front. This is not about me setting up a law for you. But I want, I want to help you. I, I want to help you grow up. I want to help you live in such a way that your whole life is about the mission that God is doing. About the mission of establishing worship in the redeemed and those that are yet to be redeemed. And so, so we just pick it up and he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. And there's the first principle. Preparedness. Preparedness. Being ready is part of the mission. Preparedness. Being a person who is ready at all times, in all places, at, at any moment. You know, in the military, I gave you a, an analogy from the military earlier. In the military, this we, we would struggle with this. I mean, it... I didn't gain a perspective to this until I started taking leadership classes in the military. When I, was a, when I was a young soldier, I thought my whole life was about going to war. And the reason I existed was to go to war. And so when there wasn't a war to go to, I joined when Desert Shield was becoming Desert Storm. And that only lasted for just a few days. You know, we were certainly there a little longer. But, but when there wasn't a war to go into anymore, it was like, well, why do we exist now? And all of a sudden, their desires to train and the desires to be ready, they kind of left us. And once I began to understand that there was more to it than just being going to war, certainly going to war is something that soldiers do, but it's not what defines a soldier. See, we train to be the best soldiers we can be. And the reason soldiers train to be the best soldiers they can be is really to prevent war. Because you don't want to fight somebody that looks like they can beat you. You see, the idea is training is the mission. Training and being prepared and being ready is all about what the mission is for the soldier. You become the soldier by training and you train to be the best soldier you can be so that it prevents war and so that you can be ready to go to war. This correlates directly or is comparable directly into Christian life. See, we don't train and prepare so that one day we can go on a mission trip. Certainly there's preparation that takes place to go on a mission trip. And we don't train and prepare so that, so that we're able and worthy to come to church on Sunday. Certainly we ought to be a part of the community and, and be with one another to worship corporately. And we prepare to be the best Christians that we can be. That's the mission. That's how we glorify God. So as we do discipleship, we don't do discipleship simply so that you can have a big head that walks around with all this knowledge and shares all this knowledge and makes you look good. We do, we do discipleship with the idea that it makes you a better Christian that glorifies God. But we, we don't do mission. We don't go on mission trips. We're not looking at going to Africa in September simply so that we can say, hey, we go to Africa and we're a, we're a great church who's on mission. No, we're on mission because we're training people to worship God. We're worshiping God with our lives. We're developing an idea of worship that's connected with the mission. Being prepared, being ready is part of the mission. In fact, if you were to go just a little further into Peter, as he gives these things, as he gives these commands and this instruction to this church, 
to these believers, he says, in your hearts, this is 1 Peter 3.15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. <clears throat> now, he certainly, there you see, he's talking about it in terms of, of being ready to give an answer. But when does he say to be ready? Always. What does it take to be ready? Study. A life given to this mission that God is establishing a people who worship him. That it doesn't happen one day a week or one week in the summer. I almost made a comment about the National Guard, but we actually have people in the National Guard. I won't, won't make fun of you today. <clears throat> Just kidding. I appreciate you guys. I really do. But the reality is it, we, this is something we, we, we do day in, day out. We work for this. We have this mentality. We have this understanding even today. That as we gather here, it is about God's glory. And it's preparing us for His mission of establishing worship in the world around us. You see, you didn't come to church today, or maybe you did. I hope that you have a larger perspective of this, that you didn't just come to church today to see what you could get out of it. But that you could come and demonstrate your your, your awe and your and your fascination and your your love and your adoration for the great God who has saved you. So I hope you came to church today with this understanding that whatever you did receive today, whatever lesson you did learn today, whatever way you might grow today, isn't so that you just look better to the people around you. But so that when you walk out the door, you're able to bring God that much more glory. And that He will be honored because of you. That we are always ready. I mean, we, whether we realize it or not, are in a war. There is a real spiritual war that goes on and rages around us every day, every second. There's a spiritual warfare that we don't typically give time or enough credit to in, in our Western society. We've got so many answers through science. We've got so much dependence on ourselves. We've got so little need for God that we forget that we are in a war. But for those of us that have come to know Christ, we're on the side that wins. See, that's our hope. But He calls us to this. He calls us to this preparation. He says, be ready. Literally in the Greek, Peter is saying, prepare your the, or, or gird up the loins of your mind. And, and what he's giving reference to is the clothes that they wore. They wore these big flowing robes. And so to get any work done, they had to get ready. It's like, I mean, you get ready, you get up in the morning and you don't go to work in your pajamas. You go to work in your work clothes. You might wear a uniform. You might you might dress like this. You, you might have have some... Uh, suit and tie that you put on every day of the week that you go to work. You get ready. This is part of the mission. And we can't be all that God intends us to be without preparing and expending, exerting the effort for it. Preparedness is part of the mission. That's the first thing I want you to keep in mind for a missional life. 
The second thing is keep your eye on the prize. He says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, that's self-control. It's being balanced in your views and not going crazy about everything. But he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We struggle every day, and, and, and you'll, I think you'll recognize this, we struggle every day with, with things that draw our attention to this world. Oh, man, i I, I got to have that house. I need that car. I, you know, I've got to have this, this, and this. I've got to have a wife, two kids, a dog, and a cat to, to fulfill this American dream, and, and then I'll be happy. I'll be satisfied. It's not that those things are, are necessarily bad or wrong to have. It's not that those, those things can't provide us some level of satisfaction. But Peter wants us to remember as we live this life in light of the gospel, he wants us to remember that there is only truly one thing that will bring satisfaction. And it's not just the momentary salvation that you have now. You and I see through a dirty glass. And I'm not saying you can't experience joy. And I'm not saying you can't experience peace. And I'm not saying that you can't experience God's grace. You certainly can. The Bible clearly demonstrates that. But there is nothing that will ever replace a longing to be with our Creator. In sight, with our eyes seeing Him. You see, as long as we live in this world, there is always going to be something missing. And we will never fully understand, and we won't even come close to having a, a, a full uh, a glimpse of, of what... All we'll have is just a glimpse of God's grace until the moment that Jesus returns and we see our suffering Savior coming as a ruling King. And we see God's acceptances of us. And we see Him Him calling us to Himself. And we see Him allowing us in His presence. And we see His beauty and His splendor and His, His perfection and His holiness. And we see it all laid out in front of us. And we begin to recognize that we are unworthy to be in that place. And then the grace of God will be huge and magnificent. Much that we will never be, we will never have understood it before. See, that we have to look forward to. That's the, the hope we have. You see, hope implies that, that we don't have it all. Hope implies that we're waiting for something else and this is it. We have to keep our eye on the prize. The wife, the car, the, two, the, 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 the house, the two-car garage, the, the two kids in the backyard, the, the cat and the dog, they, they may feel good for a moment. But that satisfaction is waning. The money in the bank account may, may feel great, but it is totally unstable. We have to keep our eye on the prize. We have to remember that there's something to look forward to. And Jesus, when he was when he was teaching. He told them in Matthew 6.33, He said, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. 
You see, the idea, the thing that he's teaching about, he's talking to people about being anxious, about the world that they live in and, and the sustenance of life and the things that, that, they, that they have to have. You know, they've got to have clothes. They've got to have food to eat. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. That's the prize. That's the thing that our heart longs for. In all the other things that we try to accumulate and all the other things that we try to, to, to bring around us and all the other things that we try to build up our own little kingdoms. They only distract us. It's not bad to have those things. Don't hear me say it. It's not wrong to enjoy the blessings of God that, that He gives us through this world. It's not wrong to enjoy the ways that He might allow us to live. But our first desire must be for His kingdom and His righteousness. See, when Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, He said, and all these other things will be added unto you. You will experience the blessing and the beauty of knowing God as you seek Him. In the Psalms it says, uh, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. It's not my promise, but it's the promise of Scripture that says when He is our desire, we will not be left wanting. Whether you have a million dollars in the bank or whether you have ten dollars in the bank, you'll be satisfied. And whether, whether you have all the things that you think make up the American dream or whether you're, whether you're struggling to... to pay for your next meal, you'll find satisfaction because those aren't the measure of who you are. And we know God's grace now. And we know God's salvation now. But the day that Jesus returns, we will know it in a way that we can only dream of today. Keep your eye on the prize. You don't live for this world but for the one to come. So keeping uh, an idea of God's mission, keeping uh, the, this idea that we're building principles for a missional life, 24-7, 365. We recognize that being prepared is part of the mission. We keep our eye on the prize. And then Paul, or I'm sorry, then Peter writes, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And I love this because as, as, he, as, he, as he opens this verse and as, as he talks about us in the sense, he says, as obedient children. We've talked about this a lot in, in Galatians. We talked about our new identity. He's no longer referring to, to these Jews, to these people who are in the church as people who are distant. He's no longer referring to them. In fact, he's, he's making a distinction between who they are now and who they were before salvation. See, Peter is saying that you have this new identity as children of God. And you and I are intended to live in it. And just to put that in a, in a phrase, see, we're always Christians. Maybe you've seen the cartoon, and as I look around the room, there's probably only about five of us that actually were on, alive when it was playing, but uh, there was a, a cartoon of a, a wolf and a dog. It was uh, Sam, no, it was Ralph, hold on, 
Ralph the wolf and, I don't know, Steve the sheepdog or something. I don't know, that's not right. But the wolf and the sheepdog, they, they went back and forth, and the, obviously the wolf would try to steal the sheep, and the sheepdog would protect the sheep, and everything was, it, it was exactly as you would expect it to be through the cartoon. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's just how we look at things, right? We know wolves are going to try and steal sheep, and sheepdogs are going to protect sheep. But at the end of every cartoon, they'd come to a place where the wolf and the sheepdog would hear a whistle blow, the, the factory whistle would blow, and they'd go and they'd grab their coffee and, you know, they'd grab their thermos and they'd grab their lunch boxes and they'd go to a tree and they'd clock out and they'd walk home as friends. And so we don't have that luxury as Christians. This isn't a nine to five job that we go home and we clock out of. In fact, the, the real luxury is, is that this is who God always sees us as. The real beauty is that this is the way He always looks at you. You are His child. You are His follower. You are a Christ follower. And so, when we face things in life, when we, when we have decisions to make, we're not making them any longer as a person who lives in this world and who has to save themselves. We're making them as a Christian who has been bought by the gospel, who has been ransomed by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. See, this makes every decision we face a missional decision, a decision about worship or seeing God glorified by others. Let's just take a few examples. In our church, you know, we don't teach that, that alcohol is sinful to drink because the Bible doesn't teach that alcohol is sinful to drink. But on one side of the aisle is there's, there's those of us that probably enjoy alcohol too much and need to stay away from it. But don't do it as a way to demonstrate your holiness or your, your worthiness to God. Do it as a way to demonstrate your honor and adoration to God. And some of us look at it as so sinful that maybe you need to take a drink. Maybe you just need to relax a little bit because not taking the drink doesn't make you holy. It makes you a legalist if you think it makes you holy. And it makes you standing in front of God holding up your works and, and your trash and saying, God, look at, look at my trash. I, I, I hope you like it. The way we vote. You know, the, I was on the way in here this morning. I was listening to... Uh, I don't know. You can listen to it. It's a talk radio show on 104.1. It is probably the silliest. I, I think it's the way. It's the biggest waste of airtime ever. I'm just telling you. Go and listen to it some Sunday morning. I don't know exactly. I know that when I come here on my way here at 8 o'clock, it's on. You can listen to it. You can hear it. It's pitiful. It's terrible. But I listen to it, and I can't help but laugh. It, it makes me laugh. And you hear how silly some people are. But anyway, on the way here this morning, they were talking about this vote. It's going to be here on Tuesday. They're voting to either repeal the ban on smoking or try and reinstitute business owners being able to choose um, whether or not their their business is a smoking business or a non-smoking business. Honestly, I'm not here to tell you how to vote on that. All I care about is that you go and you vote in such a way that it honors God. I'm not here to tell you to be Republican or Democratic or Democrat, Republican or Democrat. I don't care which way you, you, you fall in your, in your choices on who your candidate is for president in November. 
when you vote, recognize it's an act of worship. You see, he doesn't say, Paul doesn't say that obedient children who, who choose some of their choices around God. He doesn't say that on Sundays you're holy or on, on, on days that you set aside for mission you're holy. He says, in fact, in the following verse, he, or at the end of that verse, he says, in all your conduct, in everything you do, be holy. That means that every decision you and I make, every, every activity that we involve ourselves in, everything that we, every way that we spend our money, every, every way that we spend our time, everything that we involve ourselves for entertainment, everything that we do to, to build a, 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 uh, uh, even good things like ministries or discipleship or evangelism, every way that we try to build a little kingdom of our own on this earth, whether it's through a bank account or a plot of land with a house on it, whatever it is you're doing, it's all to be done with this perspective. We are always Christians. And there's not a decision that we make, not, an, uh, not, a, not a, a situation we face, not a moment of the day that this isn't true. And so everything we do, Peter tells us, is to be done with this perspective. In all of our conduct, we are to be holy. And you think, well, Seth, how does that even play into living a missional life or, or this mission of God that's establishing worship? And I think we see it in that last verse, in verse 16. He says, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. What we don't often think about or don't often recognize is that we are a reflection of him who saved us. I mean, I'm raising my kids and at times I want my kids to act a certain way because I know that people are going to judge me based on what my kids do. I mean, when I was, when I was a young guy and I was bringing my kids to church, I was, I was bringing them to church so that I didn't have to teach them about Jesus because I really didn't want anything to do with him anyway. But I was so scared about what they would do in those Sunday school classrooms because I didn't talk like a good Christian talks. And I'd hear stories about, oh, you're not going to believe what your kid did this week. Those were embarrassing to me. My kids were a reflection of me. You know what? You are a reflection of the one who saved you. He's made you holy. And what that means is that He's made you His. He has made you distinct from everything else. He's put you in the body of Christ and you are now His. But right behind what He's done, He tells you now you're to act this way. You're to choose to live this way. You're to now live in light of this. You're now to, to be a part of this. We sang those song, those, that song at the end of our worship time earlier that, that says, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. How you serve, I'll serve. Who you love, I'll, I'll love. You see, that's us reflecting the beauty and the majesty and the grace and the mercy of our great and holy and righteous God. That's worship. That's our life as an act of worship. And that's why all of these principles play into the same idea. 
that God's mission is about establishing a God-centered worship in those that He's redeemed. That means everyone who is, is in here today, God has done a work that you might worship Him. And in those He's yet to redeem, those that don't know Him yet, but will come to know Him. Those people that might be sitting in the room today that aren't believers in Jesus Christ. You believe in something. It's not Jesus Christ. And see, now as we live this life, as we live this life, it's this life, this holy life that reflects the holiness of God that He then uses to bring glory to Himself in the world. And just the next chapter over, Peter is continuing to lay out this, this explanation and these instructions. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That's a holy life. That's what he's saying. Live this moral, upright life. So that when they speak of you against you as evildoers, they may see your good, deed, good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, there's some people that would say that day of visitation is the day that Jesus returns. I'm not of that opinion, and most of the people I read and study from aren't of that opinion. But the day that God comes and makes Himself known to unbelievers, that they come to a place where they've seen and experienced authentic Christians living authentic, intentional lives, that that becomes an example of God's holiness, a tangible way that they can understand the beauty and majesty and holiness of God so that they can re then respond to His gospel. Leslie Newbigin says this. He's a guy that teaches on living life as mission and not just on mission. He says, I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic, and that's just explanation, that's a big word for explanation, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. We don't just come on Sundays and say we think it's cool and good. We, we, we believe it and we live by it. I am, of course, not denying the importance of many activities by which we seek to challenge public life with the gospel, evangelistic campaigns, distribution of Bibles and Christian liter literature conferences and even books such as this one. I don't think I got the rest of this quote in there for you, but let me just read it. But I am saying that these are all secondary and that they have power to accomplish their purpose only as they are rooted in and lead back to a believing community. Our lives together lead others to worship God. So let me close with this one thought as we've had these principles to help us establish a life of mission, a mission that, that, that is in line with and is extension of God's mission, not just evangelism, not just discipleship, not just growing a church, but establishing and seeing a God-centered worship being, being revealed in the world. Let me give you the first line of our mission statement. And not, it's, just not, it's not a statement that should be particular to our church, but I think should be the, the mission of every believer that's ever lived, that we're to worship and lead others to worship the one true God. That's what God's about doing. I think that's what we should be about doing. Worship and lead others to worship the one true God. Let's pray. Father, You are good.
You are gracious, amazing. We're grateful for your sacrifice, the sacrifice of your son on the cross. We're grateful for the work that you've done in the gospel. God, I just pray now that as we sit and we think, we've heard your word. I've done my best to, to explain it. God, I pray that you would just do this work in us through your spirit to help us grab hold of this view of mission that's not just a few times a year, but it's every day of the year. God, that you that you would be worshipped by this church, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, that we would worship you in all that we do, that you'd be honored by us, that you would be adored by us. But not just that we would gather and do this, God, but that we would be used by you to establish other worshipers in the world. Those who yet have come, to, that, that yet need to come to faith, that, that need to know you. Those who are disconnected from you, who, who have been hurt in some way by a church because they've gotten their ideas wrong about what a church exists for. Those who have been really wronged by a church because people at church are so messed up, God that we'd be used to connect people to your kingdom, that we would see your kingdom grow and that we would see you honored and adored because only you are worthy of it. I, I pray. I pray that you would do, do this work in us. I pray that if there's people here today that don't know you, God, that you would meet them in the gospel right now. That you would demonstrate to them the beauty of who you are, how you have suffered for them, that you have given your all, that they might know you, that they might have a relationship with you, that they might be connected to you in the, in the proper and right uh, perspective. God, we love you. We're grateful for this in our own lives. Just thank you. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.